Welcome to Lunch and Unlearn. In today's episode, Bree and I discuss anti-Black imagery from our past and our present. We will also share with you our featured follow, someone who is bringing back a positive narrative for Black cotton farmers. And finally, we will leave you with a challenge for the week ahead. So let's grab some lunch and get ready to unlearn together. In the midst of a pandemic, a Black revolution and a white awakening are happening. Diversity, equity, and inclusion educators Brianna Clover and Dr. Jessica Petty create brave spaces for candid conversations on race equity, focusing specifically on its intersection with ableism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identity, all from the unique perspective of a black woman and a white woman. I'm Dr. Jessica Petty. And I'm Brianna Clover. In today's episode, we want to share with you our personal observations as we continue to look more critically at the world around us with the intention of removing our own blinders so that we can see how racism manifests itself in our everyday world, specifically through imagery. Ooh, this is a topic that's so important, Jess, yet something that I think is often hidden from our consciousness living in a society built on white supremacy. Oh, Brie, can I stop you there real quick? Mm, mm -hmm. We discuss a lot of terminology that may be new or unclear to our listeners. Will you share your personal definition of what white supremacy means? Great point, Jess. Thanks for stopping me. So white supremacy is quite complex, and therefore I find myself struggling, and it's quite difficult to explain simply. But if I were to simplify a definition of what it means, I'd say that it's the belief that white people are superior to those of other races, especially the black race, and therefore should dominate society. Does that make sense? It does. Thanks for defining that. Yeah. So where should we begin our conversation around imagery? Why don't we take a look at the key aspects of our life and then dive into each one with a few examples? Okay, that sounds good. Okay, cool. First, I suggest we provide some historical context and some examples. So first, I want to explain what anti-Black imagery and what we mean by that. So anti-Black imagery is any kind of imagery that portrays Black people in a negative way or in a way that further perpetuates their oppression. We see this in our history. So I think before we dive in, I'd love to give a quick little history lesson uh, that we have seen anti-Black propaganda uh, which perpetuates the false notion that Africans and African-Americans were, for instance, happy and content in their position along the hierarchy of power, where whites ruled and blacks were less than human and oftentimes described as savages. So we see this in history show up a lot. And one example I want to share is the Mammy caricature. So from about slavery through the Jim Crow period, the Mammy caricature served the political, social, and economic interests of mainstream white America. So that's where we go back to the propaganda. So we, we saw this in people's kitchens, in billboards, in advertisements. And during slavery, the Mammy character presented this idea that Blacks in this case, Black women, were content and even happy as slaves. So hmm. we see her wide grin, her hearty laughter, this loyal servitude. When we see going through the Jim Crow period, we see the Mammy caricature as the black help and romanticized the this idea that she was this maternal figure, that she had great love for her white family and that she belonged to the white family, though that was rarely overtly stated. Mm -hmm. uh, she was portrayed as being a faithful worker. She had no black friends. The white family was her entire world. 
And if I think about that example and how it shows up, even in the time of our uh, white aunts and uncles and grandparents who might have had help that was black in their house, and she might have sat at the kitchen table, she uh, might have formed a really close relationship to white children. And there's probably fond memories of a black woman being their help growing up, Mm -hmm. but that often erases then this critical thinking around, well, maybe she had her own family and was she missing out on her family time helping out with the house? Yeah. And I can think of so many movies and television shows that, that had this example in it, but on the flip side, I don't, I can't really think of many where you see like your, to your point, true family life or representing a black woman in a different way, you know, as, you know, an educator or I, I can't even name those, but I can name many, many examples of instances that reinforce what you're sharing. Crazy, right? Yeah. (laughs) The other one that I think is common in history is the caricaturing of black people. And this happens across racial groups in, in the United States, Black Americans most commonly. And it's where Black people have been portrayed in popular culture as being savages, uh, hypersexual deviants, or childlike, or menaces. And we saw this depiction, anti-Black depiction in even things as simple as material objects like ashtrays or games or detergent boxes. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, you know, objectified black Americans and portrayed them as lesser than humans. Right. And in a lot of cases as a danger. Yes. You know, that they were portrayed as a criminal. And so that created this heightened sense of fear and further separation. And I think it's important too when if, so we hear a lot about the Jim Crow era. So I thought one more quick history lesson is who is this Jim Crow? Uh, (laughs) Who is this Jim? Yeah. Who is this Jim? So in the early 1830s, the white actor, Thomas Dartmouth, uh, Daddy Rice was uh, propelled into stardom and he would go around the country performing minstrel routines as this fictional Jim Crow. And it was the, he wore blackface and it was a character that was clumsy, portrayed as a dim-witted black slave. And he would go around and do these minstrel routines and make a lot of money and performed jokes and songs at the entertainment of white people. Crazy. That's really crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So now we know who Jim Crow is. Yes. Thank you for the history lesson. You've definitely given me some things to think about for sure. It's also a really good reminder of how the historical context of race and racism in America is so connected to our understanding of how it exists today. And it's so often hidden within our society because it's just ingrained and we don't know how it got there to even look for it. You're exactly right. I have a suggestion since we, we like to playfully challenge each other through games. I thought (laughs) (laughs) maybe I could name an area of uh, our life and ask you if you can think of examples of anti-black or anti-indigenous imagery. Okay, I'm I'm up for your challenge, Brie. <laughs> All right. Let's see how I do. Okay, so let's start with anti-black in your kitchen. You think of examples mm. in your kitchen. I think the very first thing that comes to mind is something that is in the media right now, and it's around Aunt Jemima. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
I'll have to go look at my pantry. I don't think that I have the syrup, but I'm sure that at some point in my life, I definitely have. And I don't believe it was the only syrup that um, used the image of a black woman to to sell product. But this one in particular can be traced all the way back to the 1880s when the creator of self-rising pancake batter happened to attend a menstrual show. So sort of um, connecting to what you Mm -hmm. were talking about with the Jim Crow example and saw a skit with a Southern Mammy character named Aunt Jemima and decided that that would be a great marketing tool for the syrup. Mm. And so not only was the syrup branded, but then they actually employed real women to go and, and play this character. The first one actually being a woman named Nancy Green, who was born a slave in Kentucky in 1834. And she was the first real Aunt Jemima And she was until she died in 1923. To your point, she always appeared as happy to serve, happy to be in your kitchen, Mm. always smiling and pleasant with whomever she met. (laughs) I did not know that, uh, that they had actually hired somebody to portray her. That's. And that continued (laughs) um, even after her death. There were many other uh, women that portrayed portrayed her. So that's probably the most current one I can Mm -hmm. think about because it's in the media right now that that's finally being changed. I also remember earlier this year, uh, Lando Lakes took the image of the indigenous um, Native American woman with the feather in her hair from their packaging. And they didn't make a a big Mm -hmm. announcement about it, but that was another change that was made that reminds me of this sort of imagery around women and how that's been used. Yeah. And that I have a confession to make. I, until a few months ago, consistently bought Aunt Jemima syrup batter and, and syrup. And mm-hmm. we, we raided our pantry and now we, we found another <laughs> brand yeah. and same with Land of Lakes. Mm-hmm. So learn yeah. something new every day. Okay. So maybe we transition now. Can you think of problematic mascots or names? This is hits pretty close to home for me. When I was a college student at Belmont University, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, in 1995, the mascot was actually changed from being the Rebels to the Bruins. Mm -hmm. And I remember even at that time being surprised that the college hadn't changed things earlier. But if we fast forward 25 years, there's a high school in my town, the Franklin Rebels, that is grappling Mm -hmm. with this right now. And there are, you know, many people in our community that argue that history shouldn't be erased and that trying to be politically correct has gone too far. But actually, when you you look at the origin of this particular situation, the school was the Franklin Pioneers. And the change Mm -hmm. did not happen for them until the Jim Crow era. And in 1936, the mascot was changed to the rebels. So when you're talking about history... In this case, which history is it that you're trying to hold on to? Yeah. And I can understand the the initial perception or concern around history being erased. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to challenge that for a minute, because if we're concerned about history being erased, then we should be very concerned about who wrote and influenced the curriculum for American history in schools. And those in power consistently, those in power write history. So those traditionally and still considered to be in power are white men, for example. So if we think about that in the context of 
history books, there are many historical events and experiences that are either completely erased or half-truths regarding women, Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. So I wonder if it's history being erased or if it's history being retold in a more inclusive way. Mm-hmm. And if we use that that perfect example of of the rebels, if it was retold in a more inclusive way, I wonder if the changing of the school name would be challenged so vehemently. Uh, if we considered the rebels as reinforcing white supremacy and instilling a level of discomfort and fear in black, indigenous or people of color due to our racist history, do we really want to fight to keep it? And what exactly are we fighting for? You know, it's a great point. What are we fighting for? So this makes me think of the inappropriate use of indigenous mascots at many schools across the country. I was doing a little research on this earlier, and today nearly 1,500 schools, and that includes more than 75 colleges and universities, have some sort of pseudo-indigenous imagery. And a lot of them have long history dating back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So I think that that's another great example I mean, gosh, even today, right? There's still Mm -hmm. that debate around sports teams' names. Absolutely. So next is anti-Black or white supremacist home decor. So think home decor. Before we developed our friendship, I don't know that I could have even really answered this, but you have shared some things with me that have made me see things a little differently. So I'd love to talk to you about cotton. Ah, Okay, cotton. So this is a big one. And it's something that I've further dove into just better understanding over the last couple of years in this work that I do. So cotton represents the product of a system that required slave labor to function. So I think we see, you know, more recently that perpetrators of racial intimidation have used cotton as a symbol of their hatred. I think too, one thing that I haven't often thought of is that when the cotton industry started a decline, there were a lot of white people who were negatively impacted from that decline of cotton production. So I Mm -hmm. think the memory is not necessarily as rosy, even if we were to think through the context of white people. But I think we should unpack why for many black people and people of color, raw cotton is a symbol of racial terror. And I don't know about you, but if I go to home decor shops, there seems to be a plethora of cotton decor that I could buy. And and I'm sure those who buy it might not even, of course, in most cases don't intentionally do it to instill terror. But I just think understanding that uh, perspective is important. And so personally in my home, I have cotton. We have cotton in our home. And we actually uh, purchased the cotton from a black cotton farmer, a local black cotton fa- farmer. And I put it in our home as two things, a teaching tool. So I want, as my son grows up, and even when we have visitors to the house, I actually have some of the raw cotton to feel in your hands, to feel how sharp it was, and to just at least get a little uh, taste and understanding of how that must have felt in our ancestors' hands. And the second reason is a form of honor and remembrance of Mm -hmm. um, my ancestors. I think that's so great and and such a great way to examine it and reframe Mm -hmm. it for yourself. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So I don't think we can have an episode talking about imagery and leave out Confederate statues. Yeah. 
<laughs> There's yeah. a lot of debate <laughs> about this going on right now. And, um, and I think we actually touched on it a little bit in our last episode. So I'd like to talk about this a bit more. And for me personally, I am doing research around this because as a white person, I've passed these things, you know, my entire life Mm -hmm. and they don't have the impact on me that they do, I would assume on you. And so it's important for me as I try to be more aware and participate in fighting injustice to understand what is at the root of this. So when you look at Confederate memorials, um, the majority of them weren't erected right after the Civil War. They were put up decades later, and they were not necessarily built to commemorate the fallen generals and soldiers. They were installed largely as symbols of white supremacy during periods of time of Black American civil rights movement, and they were used as symbols of intimidation. Mm-hmm. And the biggest spike in Confederate memorials came during the early 1900s, soon after Southern states enacted a number of sweeping laws to disenfranchise Black Americans and began the aggressive segregation of society. And to go back to a local issue in, in my town, Franklin, Tennessee, we have in the center of the square, right across from the courthouse, which was commonplace for the placement of these of these monuments is there there is a very large monument nicknamed chip because when it was being erected it fell and so there's a chip in the the cap of the soldier chip was erected in 1899 so it fits in the same time period um, as many other monuments and it was erected by the united daughters of the confederacy and so there has been a push within the community to balance the story And um, not even necessarily to take the monument down, although there is definitely a push for that as well. But Mm -hmm. there was a group of individuals that came together and they said, "Okay, well, if we view this as history, this is not the full story. And so they created um, what is known as the Fuller Story Project, and they simply wanted to include monuments of the United States colored troop soldiers that were so active. There were actually 300 volunteers in this particular community that actively fought. And so they wanted to be able to add additional historical statues and plaques to these same places. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy have objected to this very vehemently, claiming that they own the land where this is happening and that they will not allow any of that um, additional information to be put anywhere near this. Wow. And it's creating division Mm -hmm. that is hurtful. And I think to your point, when we talk about history and we decide what do we keep and what do we alter or what do we take down, we have to ask ourselves are we being inclusive? Is this truly the full story? And is it necessary in order to preserve history to keep these monuments? Or is there room for change? Yeah, there seems to be a common theme here when we're talking about this idea that when you know better, you do better. And in order to learn that this connection to understanding our historical or our history and really understanding the other side of the story that so often isn't told or is is only p- half truths or no truths. Mm-hmm. And I think that this relates, as you, you said so nicely, uh, it relates to this dialogue and debate going on around Confederate statues. 
And I, I was doing a little bit more research on this too, just because it's such a popular, we're seeing it more out, you know, outward in, in the news. Um, and I, I came across this quote that I just thought I would sum up with today is that now the narrative has changed to telling history. Who have we left out of history? And what history aren't we telling through the veneration of Confederate leaders? Hmm. That's a great place to leave us on that one. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So what can we do about all this um, when we think about this imagery? And as you said, when we know better, we do better. Uh, Where do we start? I think that's a really good question, Jess, and one that I find myself um, constantly being challenged with. But if I were to leave our listeners with one thing, it would be to start in the home. Uh, start decolonizing your home is what I like to say. And really quickly, since we, I know we want to get into a practice of, of covering certain terminology, colonization is what most Western countries have done for hundreds of years. It's the action or process of settling among and establishing control over the indigenous people of an area and appropriating a place or a domain for its own use. So when we think about imagery and we tie that back to imagery, what imagery are we seeing or do we have in our own homes? that are further perpetuating this ideology of colonization. So I thought I would just list off a couple examples in the home. Okay, great. Bookshelf. So what books do you have on your bookshelf? Do you have books that represent stories of Black, Indigenous, and people of color? Do you have Black, Indigenous, and people of color authors, books from a diverse racial background? Education, even when it comes to celebrating within your own household holidays around Thanksgiving, are you telling the full uh, story around Thanksgiving? I know that's a U.S. holiday. Holiday, there's a lot of tradition around it. But even if we continue to celebrate it, can we celebrate it in a way that intentionally brings to light the history and the truth around that? Fourth of July. So that's one thing that my family and I did this year is we didn't celebrate on Fourth of July. We celebrated Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. And uh, we could probably talk about Juneteenth later, which is June 19th. Another example is just the images you have in your house, like paintings on the wall. If you decorate for for Christmas, do you always have white Santas? If you are a Christian, are all of your depictions of Jesus white Jesus? Mm -hmm. And then finally, even the music that you play within your home, do you have a a wide variety of, of artists of different racial backgrounds? So that's just a few examples of just starting with the home, one small baby step at a time. You've given me some good things to think about. I think I know what I'm doing this weekend. (laughs) Bree, thanks for sharing this brave space with me today. We are learning so much from others that in each episode, we want to feature a thought leader or a resource that is important to us. This episode's featured follow is Julius Tillery and Black Cotton. Black cotton is meant to bring awareness to the plight of black land ownership that black farmers are going through now. In his own words, Julius is striving to change the dynamic of the industry and make cotton farming profitable enough that will be cool and fun for farmers like himself to be in business. Essentially, this business Julius is creating is for hope, opportunity, and education all at the same time. You can follow him on Instagram at blackcotton.us. After listening to this episode, whether on your own or with your work teams, family, or friends, we'd like to leave you with a challenge. How can you decolonize your pantry, your bookshelf, or even your home? As we embark on this journey of unlearning, we are so thankful that you're here. 
We are excited to continue unpacking this conversation around race equity and intersectionality together. Stay connected with us. Visit our website at luncheonunlearn.com and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at Lunch and Unlearn and Facebook at Lunch and Unlearn. We hope you'll grab lunch with us again and join us for more brave conversations next time.